Hey there. Welcome back to Crudax. This is the sixth episode of Who Killed Debbie and Sandy? At this point in the series, we're getting down to the nitty gritty of this case. We're looking into certain individuals who, when you examine their connections, seem to form a network that was conducting all sorts of illegal activity. Two of the big names of this network are two Bobs. Bobby Jarvis, a bar owner and known criminal who had two local law enforcement officers in his back pocket, and Bob Bass, a young entrepreneur new to the Baytown scene with well-funded familial ties and access to money, power, and connections. What we learned through police interviews is that the two men met in 1985 and became partners, so to speak, in the illegal schemes that they were doing. And somehow, some way, the victims, Debbie and Sandy, lost their lives shortly thereafter. Investigators back then, and still now, believe that there is a connection here. And by adding it all up, we believe that they were right. In this episode, I'm going to read to you another report. The final report that I could get my hands on. In this report is a shocking deathbed confession by none other than Bobby Jarvis himself. It is his account of what happened that fateful day when Debbie and Sandy were killed. So, let's just dive right in. There's a lot to share. I'm Jen Schaefer, and this is Crude Axe, Murder in a Noel Town, Who Killed Debbie and Sandy. I'd like to take a little time in the beginning here to go over the reports I've already discussed in prior episodes. I understand there are a lot of names to remember, which is why I've been creating YouTube videos as a supplement to this podcast. They'll help work as a visual aid to keep it all organized in your mind. I started sharing police reports in episode three of the series. The first one was an interview with a woman named Jan Robbins. She was friends with suspect Bobby Jarvis, as well as Debbie and Sandy, and Bobby Jarvis let her stay at the Palms Oasis Motel after her divorce and kind of helped her out and took her in. In her police report, she stated she was being harassed and threatened by a local law enforcement officer. She doesn't name him, but through our investigation, we were able to filter down the names to two men, Sergeant J.C. Deal and Assistant Police Chief Bob Dabney. Bobby Jarvis was known to be very close friends with both of those officers. In her report, Jan said that the officer told her to keep her mouth shut or else. The next report was an interview with a man named Gary Odom, who worked for Bobby Jarvis as a bartender. He was known around town as a local musician, 
an amazing piano player. I saw some videos of him playing piano. He's really good. But he also loved to party. And in his report, he stated to police that Debbie Merritt dropped by his residence on East Fayle Street that early evening that they disappeared just to say goodbye. And Sandy Terrell called him that day as well to say that she wanted to see him when she got back. Gary Odom wore many hats. He was a musician, he was a bartender, and he was also a mechanic. And he had a shop and worked on vehicles owned by both Mickey Crawford, another suspect, Debbie Merritt's boss, and he also worked on Bob Bass's vehicles. He was the owner of the Lone Star Beer Distributorship. Police discovered that Gary Odom worked on a white van that belonged to Mickey Crawford. It was suspected that the vehicle was connected to the murders, but the van conveniently disappeared. In another police report, a colorful scene was painted by a woman who was a bartender at a few of the bars owned by Bobby Jarvis. She informed detectives that Jarvis had connections to powerful businessmen, namely Nick Listy Jr., father of Chambers County Assistant District Attorney Dane Listy, and Jim Gerace, a businessman in Baytown who was primarily a CPA, but he had all other kinds of businesses. And they owned a few bars together, he and Nick, and they were connected with these bars to Bobby Jarvis. And back to the bartender's report, she also mentioned that local politicians were coming in and part of this group that hung out together with Nicholas D., Jim Gerace, Bobby Jarvis. And this group included Mayor of Baytown, Emmett Hutto. So she paints this group, this network. They all hung out together. They all partied together. They did fundraising things for Emmett Hutto to get elected. And so she provided a lot of good stuff and a lot of good connections. And then her information was corroborated in another report, an interview with local guide Jimmy Tippett. And he was also connected to Bobby Jarvis and Gary Odom, as well as Bob Bass. He informed law enforcement officers of all the illegal stuff that Jane talked about in her report, the drugs and the gambling. And he even said that. Bobby Jarvis had every intention of fleecing Bob Bass out of as much money as he could. He told them that he also saw Debbie Merritt with Bob Bass several times at the Lone Star Beer Distributorship Warehouse. So there's a lot of connections here. And again, the women were connected to this network in some way. And then finally, in the last episode, I read to you the interview with Bob Bass himself. He told investigators almost everything, the cocaine, the gambling, the prostitution. He also stated that Bobby Jarvis swindled a lot of money out of him. He denied, though, ever knowing either of the two victims. So all of these interviews were conducted in 1987. After the bodies were found that March, police spent subsequent years from 87 to 91 trying to gather evidence to support all these claims. In 1991, 
Detective Paul Schaefer left the homicide unit and went to the auto theft division, which is understandable. These cases weighed on him for sure. And then Texas Ranger David Maxwell was also reassigned. And he was off the case and he left Baytown more than likely to head back to Austin. So at that point in 91, the case of Debbie and Sandy ended up in limbo. But then, in 1991, a bombshell report was filed that should have given direction to the case and possible closure. My dad was told about this report. Mind you, he's now in auto theft. He was told about this report after it was filed by Baytown PD, and he even received a copy of the report from the filing officer himself. I now have his copy in my hands, and it's missing everywhere else. So when my dad said, to Chambers County, and he talked to Baytown PD. He's like, well, what about this deathbed confession? They couldn't find it. They don't have it. So luckily and fortunately, a copy was given to him, and he had it among all the other reports in his attic in a box. So what you are about to hear says a lot. The report was taken on September 23rd, 1991 at 5 p.m. and it was taken by officer Gene R. Parker. So basically he received a message to call retired police lieutenant J.C. Deal, the same guy who was friends with Bobby Jarvis, and he was told to call him at his residence and that it was in reference to an unsolved homicide case in which two female victims were killed, their bodies dumped in Chambers County. So the following is Parker's first-person account of the conversation. I'm going to read it verbatim. This is his report. I called Deal at his home, and he advised me that approximately one week ago, he had received a phone call from a female who did not wish to be ID'd. She informed Deal that she had been given information by Bobby Jarvis to relay to Deal in the event of his death. Jarvis died approximately one week ago, according to Deal. According to the information that was given to Deal by the female informant, Jarvis claimed to have been present when the two female victims were shot and killed. As related to the confidential informant, Jarvis, Jimmy Bass and his brother, Bob Bass, met up with the two girls. Bob Bass was flashing around a lot of money and was even lighting cigarettes with $100 bills. They all embarked on a game where a sum of money was hidden. The girls were to go find the money and if they found it, it was theirs. If they did not, then they would have to have sex with the three men. The money was hidden in a trailer home on East Fail Street, which belonged to Gary Odom, who was an associate of the three men and the girls. Gary was working at a bar where he was employed at the time, believed to be the Texas saloon owned by Jarvis. The two girls were unable to find the money, 
So they, in turn, were supposed to provide sexual favors for the three men. They all proceeded to party at the trailer. During the activities that followed, the girls began to tease Bobby Jarvis because he could not get or sustain an erection. It was then that Jimmy Bass got a gun that then belonged to or was in the possession of Gary Odom, and he shot to death the two girls. The reason was not clear, but it was either because the two victims had been teasing Jarvis or because of some money which was taken or owed. The bodies of the victims remained in the trailer until Odom came home from work. He claimed to know of a place where they could dump the bodies, which is a place where he had hunted before in Chambers County. A four-wheel drive vehicle was needed, so they borrowed one from a car dealer on Highway 146 known only as Jim or Jimmy. They could not transport the bodies in the Jeep for fear they might be seen, so they used someone's van to transport the bodies to Chambers County and then offloaded them to the Jeep to take them to the area where the bodies were dumped. According to the CI, the girls were killed in one of the bedrooms of the trailer by Jimmy Bass. The only other people present were Bob Bass and Bobby Jarvis. Prior to the two girls being shot, Jarvis had traded pistols with Odom. It is not known why the guns were swapped or exactly when in relation to the homicides. It is also not clear if it was a temporary swap or, at the time, was intended to be permanent. CI stated that after the homicides, Odom took the gun back to Jarvis and told him, you can have this back, I don't need it anymore. It is not known if they swapped guns back again. Sometime after the disappearance of the two girls, or after their bodies were discovered, Jarvis was arrested on a narcotics conspiracy charge or something related to that. During a search of Jarvis's home, one of the investigating officers found a gun, but it was not the murder weapon. Jarvis was questioned extensively about the murders at that time and was concerned about the gun. He had reported it stolen with his other guns, but within a week after his release from jail, Jarvis either pawned or sold the gun or had someone pawn it or sell it for him at a pawn shop in Dayton, Texas. According to Deal, who was friends with Jarvis, Jarvis did have a blue steel 357 Magnum Smith & Wesson revolver that he kept close at hand in his house. He had seen it a number of times and that may have been the gun used in the homicides. I again called Deal on September 24, 1991, after talking to Texas Ranger David Maxwell in the AM. I required about the confidential informant's availability to be interviewed by Ranger Maxwell. He said she is currently unavailable and out of town. He thought that she was only fulfilling a request made to her by Jarvis by telling him what she had already and she might be uncooperative regarding further information about the matter. He indicated he would try to talk to her again and ask if she would be willing to talk to Maxwell. Deal called back a short time later and gave the name of a person who ought to know all about the case also. She is identified as Jean Marie Grady, white female, 
birthday, February 21st, 1946. Height, 5 foot 4, weight, 135 pounds, blonde hair with green eyes. Currently, she is living in the Dallas area. She former lived with Jarvis and did at the time of the two homicides. Report completed by Jean R. Parker, number 19, September 24th. 1991. End report. So, there you have it, right? There you got it. Case solved. Bobby Jarvis came in at the end of his life and saved the day and gave up who did it. It was the Bass brothers all along. Bob Bass, who we've heard about, and his brother Jimmy, who we haven't heard about at all. The hunt and chase game rumor, it seems, is actually legit, and the killings of Debbie and Sandy were just some sort of cocaine-fueled night of partying gone awry. Sadly, things like that do indeed happen. But not so fast. If it was that easy to solve, why has the case remained unsolved for all these years? Why do the families not have closure? Why am I even doing this podcast? As a cold case, if the answers to it all were in that report and just that easy. Well, for starters, let's consider the source. Remember, Bobby Jarvis was a classic con artist, a manipulator, a liar, a guy who knew the best way to get away with lies was to speckle them with truths. So our first objective with this report is to separate what is fact and what is fiction. But of course, without knowing the guy or knowing the people who took the report, just knowing about him from those who knew him, those who were related in some way, and of course, police officers, how can we tell the difference in this report of what is fact and what is fiction. So this is what I did. My senior year in high school, I was in literary criticism. And what we learned in Lit Crit is how to pull apart writings to understand the meaning behind it. My senior year, we did with William Butler Yeats. And so to understand his poems, we would go line by line, reference by reference to find the meaning and the truth behind what is being said. So That's what I did, and I'm going to do now with this report. I'm going to start from the beginning, and that's figuring out, of course, who the female is that relayed the information to Officer Parker. And she didn't wish to be ID'd at the time, and he didn't give away her identification, but I am. So I did some digging. And come to find out, outlaw Bobby Jarvis was actually a married man and had been for many years and was officially married to her all the way until his death in 1991. My dad didn't even know this. Like, none of the officers knew that Bobby Jarvis was married. But he was. And his wife's name was Linda. And they married in Chambers County, Texas in 1976. And while in Baytown, Linda even lived at the Palms Motel, just like Jan. I think it's wild, by the way, that any woman would stay married to a man who was cheating on her left and right, 
had all these illegal businesses going on and was committing all of these illegal acts. It's probably why she moved to Mineola, Texas, near Dallas, Texas, in the late 70s, early 80s, was probably to get away from him, but, you know, not actually go through with the divorce. As it seems, though, it was Linda who relayed the information of the deathbed confession to J.C. Deal after Jarvis died. Deal, of course, told Parker, and Parker wrote the report that I read you. That's the who of all this, right? And so now let's look at the confession that she relayed. And we'll start from the beginning. It stated that Jarvis stated that he was there with Bob Bass and his brother Jimmy Bass, and they all met up with the victims. But he doesn't say where that was that they met up. So was it one of his bars? Was it at the Lone Star Beer Distributorship? Was it at ProAd? where Debbie worked, the business that Mickey Crawford owned, was it at a house? Was it on a boat? Like, the only thing that we can get from the statement is that they didn't meet in the trailer owned by Odom because that's where they would end up later and then where the, quote, money was hidden. So we don't know this. We don't know where they met up. But then it was stated after that that Bob Bass was flashing a lot of money around and even lighting cigarettes with $100 bills. In my gut, I believe this to be a lie or an exaggeration. It's trite. It is something that is only done in gangster movies. From what I've learned about Bobby Jarvis from his stepson, it's Linda's son, Desmond. And so it's Bobby Jarvis's stepson. But I talked to him about Bobby Jarvis. And he said that it was hard to know with Bobby what was fact and what was fiction and his lies were typically gangster-esque, and they were often told to inflate his ego and perpetuate a tough guy exterior. He also said that he dressed like a low-level mobster himself with cheap leather jackets and possibly fake gold jewelry that he tried to pass off as expensive. So this whole lighting cigarettes with $100 bills, it doesn't seem true to me. Jarvis then stated in the report that they all embarked on a game where a sum of money was hidden. The girls were to go find the money, and if they found it, it was theirs. If they did not, they'd have to have sex with the three men. So it sounds like the hunt and chase game, right? That's the one that they talked about on an occurrent affair. The whole thing just sounded ridiculous, but let's just take it at face value. So they all meet up. We don't know where. They hang out, and Bob Bass is lighting cigarettes with $100 bills. We know from Candy, Sandy's twin sister, that the women left their apartment after 7 p.m. to head out to the airport. And it's from there they went missing. So if it was after 7 that they met up, right, and then they were to go search for the money, they would have been out and about after 7 p.m. out and about in Baytown. So according to the rules of the game, they would have to collect clues. It's like a scavenger hunt from what I've heard of Hunt and Chase. And they would typically go to bar, like bar to bar and business to business and do this. But what's interesting is after the women went missing, investigators questioned a lot of people at bars, all the places that they hung out. And so if they were going around trying to find this money after 7 p.m. in Baytown, going around where people would see them, how is it that no one saw them? hopping around from bar to bar, looking for clues, following a map to find the money. It doesn't make any sense. Baytown, 
was a small town back then. And it just seems that if they were doing that, why didn't anyone see him? It's fishy. And so, of course, I believe that this is a fabrication by Jarvis. He then stated that the money was hidden in a trailer home on East Vail Street, which belonged to Gary Odom. Upon research, I discovered that Bobby Jarvis, Linda Jarvis, and Gary Odom were all linked to a house off of 401 East Vail Street. Next door to that house was a mechanic shop that was registered to Gary Odom called Odie's Automotive. This is the shop where he and Little Red, the bandito, worked on vehicles for both Mickey Crawford and Bob Bass. The trailer he was talking about was actually behind 400 East Vale Street, or at least that's where it is now. I went out there in person, and I saw it in person, and I photographed it just recently. I compared my photos to a photo that I received from Jarvis's grandson. And it was a picture taken in the 80s of Bobby Jarvis and his family in front of this trailer. And the trailer in that photo and the photos that I took of the one that I saw matched so I could confirm that this was the trailer. By the way, (laughs) while I was there off East Vail Street photographing the trailer, I met a local dude who told me stories about all the drugs that were being run up and down the street back then. He said that the white guys that lived in those houses in the area headed up the drug running and that even a police officer lived nearby, just houses over, and this police officer knew all about what was going on, and he stated that police officer's name was Bob Dabney. And this guy, he was fixing up the trailer because I guess they're thinking about renting it out. It's attached to the house that they're also repairing, 400 East Vale. Super nice guys, born and raised in Baytown, and he knew all about the shady stuff that was going on back then. But back to the confession. Okay, so Jarvis stated that the two girls were unable to find the money, right? So they all went to the trailer to party and have sex. While they were partying, the girls began to tease Jarvis because he could not get or sustain an erection. I'm going to say this. I don't see a man like Bobby Jarvis ever admitting he could not get an erection. I understand it's a thing that drug use and health problems can lead to that sort of issue. I just don't think that men openly admit it, especially men like Bobby Jarvis. It's an unnecessary detail. Why even say it? It just sounds like a lie. There's that. Then Jarvis went on to say that Jimmy Bass, who we haven't ever heard of until now, he's Bob Bass's brother, got a gun that belonged to Gary Odom or didn't belong to Gary Odom. They talked about swapping guns. But Jimmy Bass got Gary Odom's gun and he shot and killed the two girls. And what's weird about that is when they found the remains of the victims, they believed that Debbie was actually stabbed to death. Her camisole had slits indicating multiple stab wounds. Couldn't confirm it in autopsy, but that's really what it seemed like. So already stating that the two girls were shot and killed, it just didn't make sense. In, in Sandy's blouse, there were bullet holes. So that made sense, but not in Debbie's. Debbie was apparently stabbed. So that doesn't seem like the truth coming from Bobby Jarvis. And then Jarvis stated that Jimmy killed them, 
either because the girl's teasing about his erectile dysfunction or because of money which was taken or owed. If this is what happened, lies speckled with truth, right? If Jimmy Bass killed them or whoever did it, I'm inclined to believe it's about the money taken or owed and not about Jarvis's soft spot. So what money could this have been, right? Jarvis doesn't elaborate on that, of course. He just damn well skips over it. But why? Why did he pin this on the Bass Brothers without giving the real reason why they did it? Just sort of about his lack of manhood down there or about some money or taken or owed, but doesn't elaborate on that. And we know if anyone owed anyone money here, it was Jarvis and his associates, not the girls who owed Bob Bass money. He fleeced him out of all that money. Bob Bass said so himself. So why would the girls be killed for something that Bobby Jarvis did? That doesn't make sense. A con man, though, a guy like Bobby Jarvis, would easily throw someone he owed money to under the bus to eliminate them as a threat, right? So if you think about that, he owes Bob Bass and Jimmy Bass, let's just say because he's a family member, money. And if it's his associates that were a part of it, that means that they all owe some sort of money, right? And if Bob Bass was fronting all of these deals, the bookmaking schemes, the drugs, if he was fronting all the money, okay, it would behoove all of them from whoever was involved in it, including the police officers who were covering for him, it would be good to eliminate these guys, right? So on top of it, Lieutenant J.C. Deal was the person who relayed the deathbed confession. And while there's no evidence that I found that Deal committed any crimes, he was close friends with Bobby Jarvis, who was a part of that network that was for sure conducting illegal activity. Guilt by association is indeed a thing for a reason. So... Speaking of guilt, we are halfway through picking apart this deathbed confession. And I tell you, all I get from it is the stirring one-word question of why. It is because of the why that this case has remained unsolved and possibly covered up all these years. Because the why in my book is that whoever killed them, killed them over money, and as I'm extremely confident in saying it was specifically drug money and a lot of it. Solving the why will help us figure out the who. Who owed whom money, or who took money that belonged to whom? If that is indeed why they were killed, then we can figure out who indeed killed them. Whether Bobby Jarvis and his deathbed confession was actually telling the truth, or in its current unsolved state, are lying police officers covering up the case, even now to this day, to protect certain people? Well, we're going to dig into that and pick apart the rest of the deathbed confession on our next episode, because that's all my time for now. I'm Jen Shaver, and this is Crudex Murdered in Old Town, Who Killed Debbie and Sandy. I research, write, host, and record this podcast. 
Russell Dunlap helps me edit it and is the sound coordinator and makes it sound all nice and pretty. Amy Dunlap manages me and helps keep me on track. We're going to start some promotions and do all those types of things soon. I record all of my episodes out in Cabin 76 Podcast Studio in Houston, Texas. The intro-outro music is by Two Star Symphony. You can check them out on the internet and on the socials. You can check us out at www.crudax.com to read more about this case and others. Hope you're ready for more. This was only episode six, and again, I feel like we're just getting started. Thank you for listening. We will go into this deathbed confession more bit by bit, pick it all apart, and hopefully we're getting closer to really figuring out who committed this crime. So we will see you next time. Bye, y'all.